In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Three in One who gives us a timeless faith. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, when we go and visit Liz's parents who live in Alachua, um, there's, there's one thing that we, at least I kind of look forward to, and, and one of those things is uh, watching TV with their satellite dish system that um, compared to the rabbit ears and Netflix combo that we have at our house, they have more channels than what God ever intended there to be. And so as I'm, I'm flipping through all of those channels and trying to find something to watch while we're there, uh, one of the things that we normally kind of stop on is this show called American Pickers. And I don't know if you've seen American Pickers or not, but basically it is like on-location Antiques Roadshow. And what it is, is it's these two guys that are in a sprinter van, and they're traveling around the country, and they are visiting, kind of dropping in on people that are, well, basically hoarders. <laughs> and they knock on their door, and they say, hey, it looks like you have a lot of cool stuff. Can we look at your stuff? Which, thankfully, nobody has ever showed up in my door asking that question, because I don't think I'd know really how to respond. But these people, amazingly, are usually like, yeah, come on in. Come check out my barn full of old stuff. And these are people usually that have these collections of old things, whatever they are. Maybe it's old cars, maybe it's old toys, maybe it's old signs, maybe it's old something else. But all of those things, basically what the pickers are doing is they are looking for these things and looking for value in them. And the, and the value that they can derive out of these things usually has to deal with their vintage. Now, that's the name of our sermon series. The, and uh, so vintage faith. And maybe you start to wonder, okay, well, what are we talking about with vintage faith? Well, in order to start talking about that, we have to start talking about what the word vintage itself means. Vintage is just simply a word that we have sort of corrupted away from the simple idea of, well, we took this crop in this certain year and we used it for something, and that is a vintage. Usually it has something to do with grapes and wine. And so one of the ideas is that you can know what a bottle of wine tastes like because of its vintage. Because of the grapes that were grown that year. Some years have very good grapes. Some years, maybe not so good grapes. And it all depends on the weather, and it depends on different things that those grapes are going through. And so then you get to the restaurant where you're going out, and you want to have a good glass of wine, and you order the wine by its vintage. Because there is something that is reliable about knowing that vintage something reliable about knowing okay well this is anchored and tied to this particular moment in time and that is something that i can trust in that's something that i can put my faith in i know that if i order a glass of wine from this particular vintage in 1978, I kind of know, before I even taste it, what I'm going to get. 
And that's exactly what the American Pickers guys are doing. They're going through and they're saying, okay, well, this thing is worth this much because it was this thing in this year. And because of that, reliably, we know that we can sell whatever this thing is, this toy or this motorcycle or this car or whatever it is, and it will have this price associated with it because there's something knowable about that. It's old enough, it's tried enough, it's assured enough that you can say, okay, I know what this thing is. Contrast that with Gregory Lee. Gregory Lee, Gregory Lee is the president of American Operations for Samsung, which if you have been watching any of the Olympics, you have seen that their new product is the Galaxy Note 7. With their S Pen. And you've seen all of these different commercials about this new thing. This thing that is, well, not very tested. It's been tested in certain circles, but it really hasn't hit the market yet. And there's a difference there. There's a difference in that sense of knowing, okay, well, this thing that the American pickers are taking a look at that is 50 years old, that is 75 years old, that is 100 years old, this is reliable. And yet, this doodad, this phone, basically, well, this thing, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. It looks pretty cool. They're saying it's pretty cool. They, they say that this is something that I will be able to enjoy. But it doesn't really have a vintage associated with it. Now, two different products, for sure. Not many of us want to rock vintage phones. Some of us do. But there's a difference there. And so it would be like if Gregory Lee showed up at the farmhouse of one of these hoarders that the American pickers go to, and he was trying to sell the guy with the collection of toys from the 1950s on the Galaxy Note 7. Well, it would be probably a little bit of a difficult sell, simply because they're coming from two different places on what they think is valuable. Well, that's sort of what's happening here in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, which we have already looked at just recently, we had another sermon series on the first part of the book of Hebrews that we called Gift of the Lamb, and through that, we started to see that there was a theme that seemed to pop up every Sunday. And that theme was that, yes, there is something good about the Old Testament faith. But it's nothing compared to Jesus. And that's basically the theme that shows up again and again and again in the book of Hebrews. And that is something that, especially here in the latter part of the book of Hebrews, that the author is kind of playing with. He, he's playing with the sense that we have that, well, we trust things that are old. I mean, you're in a Lutheran church. As a community, Lutherans tend to trust things that are old and distrust things that are new. We are much more likely to watch American Pickers than we are to go out and buy a Galaxy Note 7. 
I suppose. And that's the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. People that are like, what's this Christianity thing? That's kind of weird. I am not entirely sure that I'm on board with this. Maybe if it looks a little bit more like the religion that I grew up with, well, then maybe it's okay. And so what the author of the book of Hebrews is doing is he's tying strings back into the Old Testament, and he is drawing those strings all the way to the New Testament and to the revelation of Jesus and to what Jesus is in that story. Because Jesus is realistically just the next part of the story. That there's not two stories here, but that there's one story, and that the story wasn't completed yet at the time of the four people that the author mentions here. Now, in this little section, we get the author mentioning four people. In fact, we, we probably get the author mentioning two pairs of people. And so, those four people are Abel, Noah, I forgot Enoch, Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. And it sort of makes sense that I forgot Enoch. You probably did too. You're probably saying, well, who's this Enoch guy? Well, Enoch, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't remember who Enoch was. Enoch gets a whole 12 verses in the Bible, at least the Bibles that we have. And there's another book called Enoch that was not written by Enoch, not written anywhere near the time of Enoch, and yet it is called that. It's kind of traditionally accepted by some people. But the book, but Enoch gets a whole 12 verses. And what we know about Enoch is this. Enoch was a good guy. We also know that Enoch was the father of the oldest guy in the Old Testament, Methuselah. We know that Enoch, according to the book of Genesis, which is where all of his stuff shows up, uh, Genesis 4 and mostly in Genesis 5, that Enoch was somebody who was simply assumed into heaven. The way that Genesis puts it is that he walked with God, and then Enoch was no more because God took him. That's all that Genesis has to say about him. And yet, this guy who gets 12 whole verses in the book of Genesis gets brought up here in the book of Hebrews. And the reason that he's brought up is because he relates to this other guy named Abel. Now, Abel you probably know. Abel was the guy who pleased God, but then unfortunately caught the bad end of a jealous brother named Cain. And so Cain and Abel, they both offered their offerings to God. Abel, Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. Cain's was not, because Cain did not actually offer the good stuff to God. He offered sort of leftovers from the back of his fridge that were getting moldy. And so God said, I prefer Abel and his sacrifice. Well, Cain didn't like that, and so Cain killed Abel. And so how do those two 
come together. Abel, the guy who died, and Enoch, the guy who, well, he didn't die. Well, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to bring out here is that, well, those are kind of the possibilities for us. That the faith that we have is the faith that is much like the faith of Enoch and Abel. Now, most of us, when we're kind of thinking about things, we think that we're headed towards an able kind of an end. Hopefully not death at the hands of our brother, but we know that death is a very real possibility for us. But we also hope. We hope for this possibility that we might be Enoch's, that Jesus might show up later this afternoon, or that he might show up tomorrow, or that he might show up on Tuesday, or sometime that we're still alive, and we know that at that point, then we get to not die. Yay! We get to be like Enoch, and simply have the story of our lives written that says, and then we were no more. Because God took us. And so that's the first thing that the writer of Hebrews is bringing out. Is that, well, there's a similarity in the ways that our lives end. That those are the two choices. That we either die like Abel. Or that we simply get taken up to God. And so he starts that off saying, okay, the end is the same. Now what do we do with this time in between now and the end? And that's when Noah and Abraham come in. And Noah and Abraham come in, and the way that the writer of Hebrew tells their stories, which we probably feel like we know their stories pretty well. I mean, Noah had a movie about him, after all, which was sort of based on the Bible. Noah, it says, kind of followed this thing that we as Lutherans would call the first use of the law. The first use of the law is this use that says, don't do this stuff. Stay away from doing these things. It is something that is supposed to be a warning for us. Don't do that. And so when we read the Ten Commandments and we read, don't murder, (coughs) Cain, we understand, okay, if I murder somebody, well, that's going to turn out badly for me. And that's the first use of the law, saying, okay, well, God gave us this law so that we know that we should not do things that are against his law because those will actually end up being bad things for us in the end. And then he totally skips over the second use of the law. Second use of the law is the one that we engaged when we were doing confession and absolution. That's the one where we say, okay, um, who am I as a sinner? And we reflect on our lives and we kind of think, okay, well... Uh, I committed this sin, and I did that bad thing, and I said this bad thing about that person, and then I thought this bad thing about that person. That's all second use of the law. He actually kind of skips over that. It's not that that's not important, but it's really something that is more about reflecting on your own life and not really engaging what you're doing with your life. And so the next use of the law, there's only three, thank goodness, the third use of the law is the one that says, well, well, here's something that you could do. And so instead of murdering your brother, well, maybe you want to sustain that person's life in some way. Instead of speaking badly about someone, maybe you want to speak well of them. And that is the story of Abraham. Abraham's story is, is 
30 use of the law when it starts off because Abraham is doing pretty well. He's hanging out. He's got a pretty good flock. He is living in the land of Ur, which is an awesome city name. And God comes to him and he says, follow me. Like he said to a few fishermen later on. Let me show you the place where I want you to go. That's the third use of the law. Let me show you the stuff that I want you to do. And so, basically, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, well, there's two things. That before you get to the end of your life, you are sort of kind of vacillating between those two things. You're, You're not doing certain things and that you are doing other things. First use of the law, second use of the law. And yet, the important thing in all of this is still yet to be revealed. And that's probably the most important point that's being made here in Hebrews. Is that all of these people, as good as they were, all of these people, as much as their stories help inform our stories, as much as we know about, well, how good it is to be people who please God and then get murdered by illness, by other people, by anything else that tends to end our lives. Or how good it is for us to be simply assumed into heaven. Those things all happened before Jesus was on the scene, before he was known, but they all pointed toward him. They all pointed toward a reality that Abel and Enoch didn't quite have a grasp on yet. And that's the same reality that Abraham and Noah were dealing with. This reality where where God says, well, don't do that and do do this. But the problem with that is, well, why do we do those things? Well, if we just leave it at the, well, I want to follow what God says to not do, and I want to, or I want to, yeah, follow what God says not to do, and what God says to do, well, that still makes it all about us. But the author of Hebrews says, look, this is something totally different. You are people that, in some ways, are, are like Abraham and Noah but in some ways are totally different. You actually belong to some place. You are actually a part of something. I don't know how many of you saw the Olympic kind of grand opening and how many of you stayed up late into the night until you got to the point of the, the people that were the refugees who are competing in the Olympic Games. There are people that come from countries that are not represented for whatever reason. And as they're not being represented, they're still athletes. They still have skills that they want to show. They're still people that want to show what they've got. But they don't have a country that will either claim them or that they want to claim. Well, that's a perfect picture of what is being drawn up here in Hebrews. Is that... We have been given refugee status 
by God's Olympic Council. That we are set in this place where we have a citizenship that is not yet fully realized, but one in which we can act. One in which we can say, well, I'm not going to do that. I am going to do that. And yet I know that at the end of it, I'm going to turn out either like Abel, which is not necessarily a bad thing, or like Enoch, which is definitely not a bad thing. But that's who we are. And that's the faith that we have. It's a faith that is timeless and yet tied to time. It's a faith that is timeless in the sense that we will reach beyond this time into the resurrection. And a faith that is anchored in time with people like Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Noah. And so as you live out your refugee status this week, may you recognize that faith that you have is timeless, that it reaches back and it reaches forward. But that it only reaches forward because of Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross. Amen.